from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. This is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Blues legend Robert Johnson's talents as a guitarist and performer are often overshadowed by myths. Did he really sell his soul to the devil at the crossroads? To hear Robert Johnson was just like to hear somebody from outer space. It was, it was totally revolutionary. We'll explore Robert Johnson's life, music, and legacy. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. And I said hello, Satan. I believe it's time to go. I went to the cross road, fell down on my knees. I went to the cross road, fell down on my knees. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we are talking about a blues musician whose myth looms larger than life. Robert Johnson. His influence on pop music is deep and lasting, persisting to this day, even though there's very little recorded music by him out there. A large part of that legacy is because of the myth that he sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads in exchange for his signature guitar-playing prowess. And uh, believe it or not, the mystery only escalated from there, Jim. Born in 1911, Johnson displayed this really great stage presence from the moment People started watching him perform. A lot of talent, a lot of potential, but he died suddenly at the age of 27 under uh, very suspicious circumstances, and that's an understatement. That was 81 years ago this month, and since then, there have been all kinds of rumors and stories told about Johnson. Today, we're talking with an expert on Robert Johnson, Bruce Conforth. He co-wrote the book Up Jump the Devil, The Real Life of Robert Johnson, with historian Gail Dean Wardlow. In writing that book, they finally got to some of the truths, and what they uncovered was a lot more fascinating than the myth. Bruce Conforth's resume also includes work as the first curator for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's also a blues historian and former professor at the University of Michigan. Bruce, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you so much for having me. This has been billed as the definitive book, and it's true. I've read just about everything written about Robert Johnson, and you have put together a comprehensive biography of a blues man who has been described for decades as a mystery, a phantom. And you were the man that set out to do it along with your co-author, Gail Dean Wardlow. What made you climb that mountain? Well, part of it was precisely the fact that they said it couldn't be done. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, seriously, I remember I remember when I first heard Johnson back in the early 60s. Nobody had ever heard anything like him um, before. He was the first country blues artist to be released on a major label. So, I mean, his music and his singing and his his lyrics were completely revolutionary to to all of us. Um, I was part of the folk blues revival in New York City in the in the early 60s, and, and to hear Robert Johnson was just like to hear somebody from outer space. It was it was totally revolutionary. Early this morning When you knocked upon my door Early this morning When you knocked upon my door And I said, hello, Satan I believe it's time to go. 
then to hear that nobody knew anything about this guy, that was enough. It was like, okay, I, I, I not only have to learn everything I can about his music, but I'm going to devote as much time as I need to to finding out the truth about this guy's life. He died young, age 27. Essentially, his entire recording career was uh, in two sessions. Was that the reason that so little was known about him? I don't think he really got super famous in his lifetime, right? No, it's an interesting thing. He actually had kind of two levels of fame. On the one hand, um, some people knew him because of his records. And admittedly, his records did not sell well. His his best-selling record... Terraplane Blues, sold uh, anywhere between five and 10,000 copies, which clearly is, is not a hit. So he had, he had his recording career, but then it was his live performances that really seemed to be the most influential. When we were doing the book, we discovered that those people who saw Robert live said he was, there was absolutely nobody else like him. I mean, that he, he was the most amazing performer live. On record, that just didn't seem to come across. Most people said, well, that's not one person. That's two people playing guitar, and it's, oh, okay, so yeah, just, just another blues artist. Essentially, every other page in this book could have begun, everything you know about Robert Johnson is wrong, such as the father. You know, I wonder how you and Gail Dean felt debunking what has been decades and decades of mythology. Gail Dean and I always used to say, I mean, during this whole project, we used to say, you know what? Everything people thought they knew about Robert Johnson is wrong. Exactly what you said. Mm. But what we also felt was that the story we were beginning to uncover was more interesting than the mythology that had been developed around him. And and I think that uh, one of the main purposes behind our, our doing this book was to return Robert's identity to him. Because personally, I feel that all those myths, all the stories about, well, Robert Johnson's recordings are at the wrong speed, Oh, here's another photograph of Robert Johnson, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. here's oh, here's somebody who claims they own Robert Johnson's guitar. Every time every time one of those things surfaces, personally I feel it's kind of like a form of identity theft. The, the Robert Robert has developed into such a commercial business that people have made a tremendous amount of money and a tremendous amount of personal fame from stealing his identity. And what we really wanted to do with this book was to get rid of all that trash and give Robert himself back. I got stones on the pathway And my road seemed dark at night I got stones on the pathway And my road seemed dark at night I have 
taking my appetite. We're talking with Bruce Conforth, the uh, author, co-author of Up Jump the Devil, The Real Life of Robert Johnson. I think one of the things about Johnson that you debunk very well in the book is this whole notion of, you know, he sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads and he became this genius blues man overnight. And what you drill down into is that it didn't work like that. This wasn't some primitive guy from the from the fields that suddenly learned how to play guitar and was a genius and blew everybody's mind. He was actually a, a very skilled artist, a self-conscious artist, a, a modern artist. So the, this whole devil at the crossroads stuff, explain how that got started. What was, what was the origin of that story and why did it persist for so long? Well, what the actual origin of the story is, we'll probably never know. Some people trace the roots back to, to Africa and Yoruba belief um, and, and, and rituals. It gets syncretized in the Caribbean and eventually comes uh, ashore to, to North America um, with the slave trade and gets mixed up with Christianity. So what originally began as a trickster figure in Africa becomes mixed up with the devil in the United States. The idea of... of a crossroads, the crossroads, I mean, that's that's almost a universal concept that the crossroads is, is a symbol of the the, the joining of the, the, the past and the future, the ancestors and the present, heaven and hell. Uh, I mean, crossroads were always seen in, in almost all cultures as a magical, mystical place. And, and they usually had some kind of guardian at, at the crossroads. So in African-American tradition, it was said that uh, you could go to a crossroads and, and you could make a deal, not with the devil, but you could make a deal, generally it was said, with a big black man who would show up and you could work out your deal with this individual and gamblers would do it, not just musicians, gamblers. Any, you could make any kind of a deal that you wanted. And um, as I said, this, this, this is a tale that, that goes back in, into at least – the early part of the, the 20th century, if, if not predating that. And, you know, the people like Tommy Johnson. Tommy Johnson allegedly is the first blues man that uh, claimed to have made a deal with, with the devil at the crossroads or made a deal at the crossroads. At least that's according to his, his, his brother's stories. Um, and then there were people like Petey Wheatstraw, who billed himself as the devil's son-in-law, the high sheriff from <laughs> hell. And and there were there were other other blues artists who sang about making deals with the devil, predating Robert. So, so by the time Robert comes along, um, he's born in 1911. By the time he comes of age in the 20s, this is this is a part of of folk mythology that that's really quite well known. So it's it's not it's not terribly surprising that uh, that Robert would have known about this this mythology. So are you saying that uh, that Robert embraced it that he would talk about it at all or, or 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 was it more other people putting that tag on him? We have no indication that Robert himself ever actually said that. Now there are several accounts Honey Boy Edwards once said that he heard Robert talk about it. And um, one of Robert's girlfriends said that she asked Robert, and he said, oh, yeah, I did it. But we don't really have any proof that those things ever, ever really happened. I went to the crossroads, fell down on 
Well, and part of the way this took off, I'm sure, has to do with Johnson's tragic ending, right? I mean, tell us, tell us, Bruce, about uh, about his death so young. Part of it uh, has been told many times before. I mean, basically, he was fooling around with the wrong woman at the wrong time in the wrong place. He was fooling around with the wife of a sharecropper who happened to also work in the juke joint in which he was playing in Greenwood, Mississippi. And uh, this gentleman decided to put something in Robert's drink that was not intended to kill him. This was a a concoction that was often used to get rid of unruly drunks Mm. in, in juke joints because what it would do is it would basically incapacitate them. It would make them really nauseous, make them really feel sick, and they they would just they, they wouldn't be unruly drunks anymore. They'd have to just leave, and and that's what this guy wanted to do to Robert. He just wanted to kind of teach Robert a lesson. Unfortunately, what he didn't know, but Robert did, was that a month before Robert went to Greenwood, he had visited a doctor in Memphis, and had been diagnosed with not just having an ulcer, but with with uh, having inflamed varices in his esophagus. And when this stuff started to affect his um, ulcer, he started to throw up, rupturing the varices in his esophagus. And even today, that's, that's a highly dangerous circumstance. If you don't get immediate treatment for that, you have less than a 50% chance of surviving. And, of course, Robert did not have access to it. And even if he did in those days, in 1938, there probably would have been very little that anybody could have done. So Robert basically spent three days throwing up and bleeding to death. And the days keep on me For hell out on my trail Hell out on my trail Hell out on my trail yeah, this is, that's a horrible... It, the way you describe it in the book, that could sound really painful, really horrible. It was a horrible death. Uh, yeah, it really was. And, you know, and, and, and you, one can almost imagine how you know, someone like Honey Boy Edwards got the story that Robert was basically crawling around, foaming at the mouth and howling you know, like a dog, which feeds, of course, into the myth of mm-hmm. you know, getting retribution, you know, the devil getting his, his due. Uh, but but I'm sure, yeah, I mean, Robert must have been writhing in terrible pain. A sad ending, too. I mean, he was buried and no one really came to the funeral, it seemed like. It was just all very kind of covered up. There was no investigation of the death. Uh, nobody seemed to care about Robert Johnson at that time, right? Well, there was a little bit more than just that. There was um, a minor investigation, but... Um, it it really didn't amount to anything. The overseer for the plantation, Luther Wade, was interviewed by by the coroner's office, and he basically said, "Well, I don't know. You know, this 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 guy came down here, and and you know, because he he wanted to play a banjo at uh, the plantation dances, and and uh, he really wasn't working on the plantation, and uh, I think he died of syphilis. And you know, I I suspect, uh, as we say in the book, that that it was just his attempt pretty much to cover up mm-hmm. what would have been a really unsightly uh, investigation had had anybody said, well, you know what, this was really murder. But anyway, after after Robert's half-sister, Carrie, was notified of his death, Carrie went down with several other members of the family and friends, hired the only 
black undertaker in Greenwood had Robert dug back up because he had originally been buried in just a simple pine box. She had him dug back up, um, placed in a proper coffin, and reburied with a real preacher there. So there was a a little bit of a service Mm -hmm. um, after he had been originally laid down by the state. Well, and one of the sad twists is that uh, he was just on the eve of being introduced to a much bigger audience by John Hammond, the legendary talent scout. Right. That that, that would have been pretty amazing. Um, Hammond had been a champion of, of Johnson since 1936, since Johnson's first recordings, extolling Johnson as being the most authentic uh, blues musician ever who makes Lead Belly seem like uh, an amateur. Um, (laughs) And that's that's one one heck of a statement because at that time, Lead Belly was all the rage. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, uh, Hammond really wanted Johnson to perform at his From Spirituals to Swing concert, and he was so sure of himself as an uh, impresario that when he had the original flyers for From Spirituals to Swing printed up, he actually had Johnson's name as one of the performers printed on it, and this, this e- was to even, be a, though, even a, though he hadn't even gotten in touch with Johnson yet. Mm-hmm. And this was to be at Carnegie Hall, right? Right. That's <laughs> like amazing. Uh, and then, of course, Johnson is dead and he never performs. Exactly. I got a kind-hearted woman Anything that's worth for me You know, it's it's a sucker's game. Having written uh, several biographies, Greg has too. Um, you know, the what if game. But uh, Bruce, uh, you know, had he not been poisoned, had he had he lived, had he played Carnegie Hall, what would Robert Johnson have done in the next fifty years of his life? Well, obviously, uh, like you said, it is a sucker's game. There's no way to know for sure. But but I kind of think that Muddy Waters um, took Robert's place, and so. One can easily imagine Robert becoming Muddy Waters. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, uh, Robert was very staunchly an acoustic guitarist. He was introduced to the electric guitar, as you write in the book, uh, near the end of his life, but didn't take to it. Uh, and obviously the sound was already changing. When you went to the northern cities, they were playing jump blues and things like that. They were, these were band performances. Robert was a solo performer. And it took decades later for the real genius in his performances to be really recognized by a new generation of folk artists and blues artists and and rock artists as well who uh, started covering his songs. Um, What was it about his music that resonated, that seemed to be ahead of its time? Well, I I think there there are several things. First of all, I think what Robert did is Robert codified everything that came before him. Um, because most of Robert's songs are kind of like borrowed, you know. I mean, he he would take a melody from here, uh, lyrics from someplace else. Um, his his song "Sweet Home Chicago" is 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 basically identical to Kokomo Arnold's song, um, old original Kokomo blues. I wanted one is two mama, two and two is four. You mess around, you pretty mama, you know we got to go, kind of. Baby, don't you want to go 
Back to the level light city To sweet old Kokemon They don't you want to go Back to the land of California To my sweet home Chicago However, um, when Robert would codify a song, he wouldn't just take that song and redo it. He pared things down. He'd change the tempo. He'd add his signature riffs. When you listen to Kokomo Arnold's old original Kokomo Blues, the slide guitar that he's playing is incredibly virtuosic, but it's almost manic. It's all over the place. It's, it's wonderful. It's remarkable. But it doesn't, it's, it's not necessarily integrated with the lyrics and with the song. Back to Level Light City, the sweet old Pokemon. When Robert takes that and turns it into Sweet Home Chicago, he takes the guitar and he creates a signature guitar riff that goes along with the sound. My sweet home, Chicago. And that, that was incredibly important in Robert's music. He really was the first blues artist to really make use of, of the riff as a signature style. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that guitarists before him didn't use riffs. But, you know, if you listen to, to Sweet Home Chicago, if you listen to Terraplane Blues, if you listen to Crossroad Blues, you know, so many of his songs have these riffs that as soon as you hear them, you go, oh, I, I know that song. It's like when you hear the beginning of, of Johnny Be Good. You, I, I know that song. Mm-hmm. Then he wanted to be able to do on the guitar what people did on the piano, which is why when people heard his recordings, a lot of times they thought it was two people playing because right. he was really very successful with that. You know, He was able to, to, to get this, this shuffle beat going. And by the way, he was the first one to really make use of the shuffle beat on the bass strings. So he'd make use of the shuffle beat and have his melody line going on top of it. And as a guitarist, I can tell you, I mean, I've been trying to play his stuff now for more than 50 years. And there are, there are, there are just times when, when he was able to do those two things together that I still say, my God, how did he do that? Yeah, how the devil really did have uh, something to do with it, right? <laughs> <laughs> We have been talking to Bruce Conforth. He uh, wrote Up Jump the Devil, The Real Life of Robert Johnson with Gail Dean Wardlow. Impeccable research, great storytelling. A lot of people bummed out because everything they thought they knew about Robert Johnson (laughs) was wrong. Thanks for being on Sound Opinions, Bruce. Oh, this has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, we'll share some of our favorite interpretations of Robert Johnson's songs. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis, and this week we're talking about all things Robert Johnson. Now, before the break, we discussed the myths surrounding the singer and guitarist's life and how many of them were deemed to be untrue. Now we want to highlight the great music he wrote. As we said, Johnson only ever had two recording sessions in his brief life. But his songs have lived on through the music of other people across genres, performing them not only in their in concert but on their studio recordings. And the famous ones uh, are well known: um, Cream's Crossroads. I went down to the crossroads, fell on my knees, 
Rolling Stones' version of Love in Vain, Led Zeppelin's Traveling Riverside Blues, White Stripes doing Stop Breaking Down Blues. These are all Robert Johnson songs that have become much more famous in their cover versions than they were in the original version by Robert Johnson. Uh, now, Jim, though, we want to dig a little deeper than that, and you're going to go first. Yeah, such is the Sound Opinions way, Greg. We're yes. going to we're going to go a little bit deeper. Uh, I'm going to lead off with a song by the Gun Club. Uh, they did it as Preaching the Blues. Both uh, Johnson and Son House recorded versions as Preaching Blues. Um, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about the Gun Club is uh, the sad, tortured life of band leader uh, Jeffrey Lee. Pierce. He died in 1996 of a brain hemorrhage. He'd had his bouts with drugs. He was a huge inspiration to many people in those uh, indie rock 80s. You know, later in their career, Jeffrey Lee Pierce and the Gun Club recorded for a label started by members of Blondie. Uh, those two bands were tight was really sort of uh, an offshoot, uh, his music, I think, in a lot of ways, of the psychobilly of the cramps. And he was a galvanizing performer on stage. I saw them two or three times. Uh, Kid Congo Powers, who went on to play with Nick Cave, was a member of the band. It was really something to see him. I think, you know, I never saw Johnson. I know you didn't either. Uh, <laughs> but, but this tortured man finding catharsis yeah. in music on stage, a difficult life, uh, not wallowing in the misery, but purging the bad feelings, uh, and preaching blues, preaching the blues. You know, I woke up this morning, blues walking like a man. In other words, Johnson, like Jeffrey Lee Pierce, was the personification of this music. Here is a little bit of Robert Johnson's preaching blues, followed by the Gun Club's version from 1981 on Sound Opinions. Club from the Fire of Love album in 1981. Greg, where are you going? That's a fantastic cover, Jim. I applaud you for including that. That was certainly on my list as well. We had mentioned at the top that we want to go a little deeper than the typical Robert Johnson covers that we all know so well. 
which is the reason I uh, dove in for uh, the Travelin' Riverside Blues version by Hindu Love Gods. Uh, you, you 90s music fans out there will, will probably know the name of that band. It was a one-off. Uh, Warren Zevon and uh, three members of R.E.M., Bill Berry, Peter Buck, and Mike Mills. Uh, Zevon brought them in to uh, record his album, Sentimental Hygiene, and then apparently one drunk evening, they decided to get together and just, you know, jam, man. And, uh, <laughs> you know, nobody thinks of R.E.M. or Warren Zevon particularly as these blues aficionados, but in that late-night jam session, a couple of Johnson songs, as well as a few other blues songs, surfaced. Uh, it was never meant to be released, uh, but eventually did, and uh, one of the songs on the record, their cover of uh, Princess Raspberry Beret, actually became a hit. But I'm going to focus on their Traveling Riverside Blues, which uh, Zevon really has a blast singing. This is the song uh, that originally referenced that that infamous squeezing my lemon line that uh, Led <laughs> Zeppelin by Led Zeppelin. Yes, yes, Led Zeppelin appropriated it for their own the lemon song, but I enjoy it just for the sheer audacity of these guys doing it. They're just throwing themselves into it, particularly Zevon on the vocals, uh, in the same way that Chuck Berry was a touchstone for the second and third generations of rock and roll. I think Robert Johnson is one of those similar kind of influences, and you can hear it here in this version from 1990. Hindu Love Gods with their version of Traveling Riverside Blues. Hindu Love Gods with their version of Travelin' Riverside Blues on Sound Opinions. Jim, what do you got next? Well, Greg, you know, when I uh, talk about the blues in my music and media in Chicago class at Columbia College Chicago, all of the young women in class, uh, you know, groan. <laughs> We're going to talk about the blues today. Because, it, you know, so rarely uh, are women lauded as avatars of the blues, uh, even though they were a key part from the beginning Lucinda Williams, of course, the great Louisiana-bred singer-songwriter, became uh, uh, one of the leading lights of that Austin, Texas, alt-country, proto-alt-country movement. Uh, truly great talent with one of the best voices, one of my favorite voices in all of popular music history. She flips the script, of course, not 
uh, not the guy being done wrong by his baby and walking out the door. You know, uh, she hates to leave you, baby, but you treated me so unkind. I'm going to pack my bags and leave on the morning train. Lucinda makes you feel as if whoever spurned her affections is now eating dust. I love it. It's a ferocious cover. It, it is the song, Ramblin' On My Mind, at various times called Ramblin'. Johnson got there first. Lucinda Williams perfects it. I got ramblin', I got ramblin' on my mind. Little boy, little boy, I got ramblin' on my mind. I hate to leave you, baby, but you treat me so unkind. I got mean things, I got mean things on my mind. I got mean things, I got mean things on my mind. Cinda Williams' version of Ramblin' On My Mind. Greg, who have you got next? Well, Jim, uh, Lucinda has uh, got serious bona fides as a blues aficionado, and so does Bonnie Raitt. Um, what I'm amazed by is this version of Robert Johnson's Walkin' Blues was recorded when she was all of 21 years old. Um, first of all, she sounds much more experienced <laughs> than that mm. when she's doing this cover. And, and it, it's a great one. It is one of uh, Johnson's most iconic songs. Robert Johnson's Walkin' Blues was based on a Sun House original that was never actually released, but was often heard in the South. And it was later adapted uh, by Muddy Waters. Uh, Johnson did his own version of the song, which was uh, is considered a classic. It's a song of loneliness. You know, I had to, I had to move to break out of this cycle of loneliness and despair. Anything but to stay here and be reminded of how low I've I've sunk. Up this morning, being round her from a zoo. But you know about it, I got to eat a walking blue. So this idea of, of just, just putting on those walking shoes and getting out and, and getting out, hopping on a train and going anywhere. I don't care. Don't I don't want to stay here. When Bonnie wanted to record this record, she wanted to record it in as realistic a fashion as possible, much like the original blues guys did, gathering musicians in a room and, and, and doing it pretty much live. Uh, there, there are very few, if, no, if any, overdubs on this record. It's a bunch of guys and Bonnie in a circle recording. Uh, she recruited some masters to play with her. That's uh, Bonnie Raitt on lead vocals and slide guitar. She's already a master of that instrument, and uh, certainly her vocals are are steeped in blues tradition. Uh, there's this great uh, set of hand percussion going on in the song, kind of accompanying it and driving along. And then the great Junior Wells, the, uh, the great uh, Chicago blues harpist, uh, also can be heard on this song. This is uh, Bonnie Raitt with her version of Walkin' Blues on Sound Opinions. ¶¶ 
shoes You know by that I must have had them Well, walking blues Woke up this morning, people I feel around for my shoes Well, you know by that I must have had them Walkin' Blues by Bonnie Raitt. When we come back, more renditions of Robert Johnson's songs that we think you'll love. Plus, musician Kevin Morby shares what late 90s rock song got him hooked on Sonics. That's coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis. And this week we're discussing and celebrating the life and legacy of Robert Johnson. Now, his career was relatively short. He died when he was 27 years old, but he made a major impact on music with his uh, revolutionary guitar style and his revolutionary songwriting, one of the first blues men to create a narrative style in his uh, songwriting. We've been sharing some of our favorite interpretations of uh, Robert Johnson's songs, and Jim, you've got one more for us. I do, Greg. You know, it's always been amazing to me how few hip-hop artists sample the great blues masters. And and I remember having this conversation with the pioneering Gil Scott Heron, the link, you know, between street corner poetry and what would become hip-hop. Huge influence on that scene, and he had thoughts about it, too. You know, his last album came out in 2010. He died uh, not long thereafter, and he uh, had covered Robert Johnson's Me and the Devil, variously called Me and the Devil Blues, uh, different different titles of it. You know, kind of uh, the quintessential Johnson song, the hellhound on his trail. He's going to board a Greyhound bus and try to get away from that devil who allegedly bought his soul at the crossroads. In Gil Scott Heron's hands, in this version that he did near the end of his life, I think you can hear in this song uh, not only the hellhound, the dog that is that is haunting him being a metaphor for the devil, but I think racism. You know, you're a dog, you're dogging me around, people been dogging me all my life, that old evil spirit that's going to eventually drop me in the ground. I think it's really, really powerful, and it lives on. Gil Scott Heron, Me and the Devil, from 2010. Me and the devil Walking side by side Me and the devil Walking side by side And I'm going to see my woman Till I get satisfied See 
late, great Gil Scott Heron, Me and the Devil. You got one more choice, right, Greg? I do, Jim. I always uh, get a shiver when I listen to Gil Scott Heron's version of that song. Uh, It's just chilling. Um, I want to play one of uh, Robert Johnson's uh, most iconic songs, and that's really saying something, uh, Dust My Broom. Uh, In Robert Johnson's telling, it was, I believe I'll dust my broom. And uh, arguably an even more famous version of that song was uh, later recorded by Elmore James. Mm. Um, Elmore James took that um, signature triplet guitar riff that Robert Johnson played on the original song recorded in, in the 30s and amped it up, amplified it, and put that slide guitar on it, and that became one of the great all-time rock guitar riffs. Everybody references when they talk about, well, what's the beginning of rock and roll? You could look to uh, Elmore James' version of Dust My Broom. Cassandra Wilson had some fun with it, though, in 2008. Cassandra Wilson, a noted jazz vocalist, did an entire album of what she called jazz standards. And obviously, Robert Johnson spoke to her as a not only a blues guy, but a, as a jazz musician, an innovator, a guy who could improvise and and turn a small kernel of idea into an entire new world her version of dust my broom has nothing to do in many Uh, ways with the originals um she doesn't do anything with that triplet guitar riff uh and and doesn't do anything with the elmore james uh, dawn of rock and roll guitar riff Mm -hmm. either she she sort of expands the song and turns it into this simmering mood and i think what cassandra's honing in on is that a lot of Robert Johnson's music has an incredible sense of existentialism about it. I mean, he is a man contemplating his life, being alone, doing it, just thinking, Mm. I'm just a speck in this universe, you know, and I I, I feel it. I feel it in every bone of my body, and a lot of his songs are coming from that deep, desolate place of pain. And I think some of that is in this song as well, as well as a sort of a playfulness that she brings to it. Yeah. She flips the gender on the song, the per- perspective of the woman now getting rid of her man. You can mistreat me in New York City, but you can't mistreat me like that back home. And then she takes it to China, the Philippines, <laughs> Ethiopia. She sort of, you know, plays with this idea. So yeah. it shows you how malleable his music is. Cassandra Wilson with her version of Dust My Broom from 2008 on Sound Opinions. I believe, I believe that I'll go back home I believe, I believe I'll go back home Well, you can mistreat me in New York City But you can mistreat me when I go home I'm gonna call over to China See if my good man's over there Yes, I'm gonna call over to China To see if my good man's over there Well, if he ain't on the Philippine Islands, y'all He must be in Ethiopia somewhere He must be in Ethiopia somewhere <laughs> Woo! Cassandra Wilson with Dust My Broom, having traveled a long way, Greg, from those crossroads that Robert Johnson visited. But enough about what we think. We want to hear from you. 
Do you have a favorite Robert Johnson song or cover song or sample? Call 888-859-1800 with your choice and tell us why. That's a little bit of OMG Rock and Roll by Kevin Morby. Uh, Morby got his start in the psych rock band Woods and the Brooklyn punk band The Babies, and as a songwriter, he's released five solo albums, including a double album earlier this year called Oh My God. He cites uh, Lou Reed and Nina Simone as big influences on that album, but it wasn't anything as uh, critically acclaimed that first got him interested in making music. He recently spoke with our producer Andrew Gill for our series Hooked on Sonics. Hey, this is Kevin Morby, and if it weren't for Third Eye Blind, I may have not become the musician that I am today. I was born in Lubbock, Texas, and then my family moved to Detroit, Michigan, and then we moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and then to Oklahoma City. And it was in Oklahoma City where my older sister, Michaela, she was kind of my entry into music because neither of my parents really listened to music. You know, there's no, no musical instruments in the household, no records in the household. We liked sports, and we just kind of did what everyone else did, which didn't involve a lot of music. So when I was about eight years old, my sister Michaela, who's about five years my senior, she sent one of those uh, record CD penny scams where she sent a penny into uh, to some magazine, and they, they sent back all these records. So when my sister got all these records, all these like magical things had just been brought into the house, and I was sifting through all of them, and amongst those was a Third Eye Blind self-titled album along with a whole bunch of other records. And, you know, I remember there was, like, Backstreet Boys and there was uh, Robin, that pop artist's first album. All the pop stuff was good, and I kind of thought that's all music was. Like, all music sort of sounded like the Backstreet Boys or something. But I stumbled upon the, uh, the Third Eye Blind record in this pile of, of CDs. That was the first time I think I've really heard rock music that was based off of guitars and really lyric driven and it, it really blew my mind. It felt real, you know what I mean? I guess it'd be like eating a bunch of candy and then you have an orange and you're like, this is this is kind of better than the candy and I, I, I feel better, you know, when it goes inside of me. How do I get back there to the place where I fell asleep inside you? How do I get myself back to the place where you said... You know, I was a huge baseball fan at the time, and I still am a baseball fan, but that was like, I, I live and breathe baseball, and I read baseball magazines, and it's all I wanted to do when I grew up. And I remember distinctly listening to the Third Eye Blind record for the first time, and sort of just staring at my, my stereo and thinking, I want to be a musician someday. You know, it was the first time that 
that this other childhood dream I had 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 been overridden by something new, you know? first time hearing music like that that was very emotional and it was talking about things beyond my imagination like suicide or drugs or you know even love you know you don't understand love at that that young of an age but I don't know I just craved it and I couldn't wait to get home from school and just like listen to it and I just wanted to put it inside my mind at all times and you hold me and we are broken funny thinking about now, you know, like really craving a, a Third Eye Blind record that much, but it, it really uh, hit me hard and it, it was the first time that I, I ever thought I wanted to play music for a living. In past interviews I've, I've said things like, oh it's embarrassing but Third Eye Blind's the first band I was ever in love with and I need to get over that. I'm really proud of my heritage with them. That's Kevin Morby talking about Third Eye Blind's semi-charmed life. That's a good distance away from those uh, influences of Lou Reed and Nina Simone. I'll say. But that was the song that got him hooked on Sonics. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a conversation and performance by the band The Mountain Goats. That was a great session. I can't wait to hear it on the air. If you are interested in more Sound Opinions podcasts, you can get those things wherever you find them. As always, the show was produced by Brendan Banasak, Alex Claiborne, Ayana Contreras, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. This is Peter in El Cerrito, California. I was moved to call after listening to your uh, Ramones uh, dissection, and I have a lot of kind of conflicted, mixed feelings about the Ramones, um, though they're probably the most important band in my upbringing and in my life. And yet one thing I noticed about you guys when you did this piece is that, you know, like a lot of people when they talk about the Ramones, they, you didn't address anything that they did musically after the late 1970s. I saw them quite a number of times in the early 1980s. And by 1986, they, they had it down to a, like a Vegas science of what songs they were going to play next. They would kind of Vegas eyes their set, and they were rushing through it in this kind of hardcore way. It was kind of dull and Joey was just kind of barking out songs, and you know, it just wasn't really fun to see them exactly. It was very mechanical. And yet, they were making these really interesting records. Like, Too Tough to Die, I think it was 1984, was a really interesting record. Animal Boy around that time was a good record. And nobody talks about those records. They were sort of stretching out and being interesting in the studio, and yet live, they just kind of couldn't care less. 
And that wasn't very long into their existence. So it was a, an interesting paradox to be a Ramones fan back then. But other than that, you know, so great to hear them dissected on an academic level because I think it's worth it. Bye. This is Rob from Northeastern Ohio. I'm calling about the Ramones show you just did. I saw the Ramones with the Tom Tom Club and Deborah Harry in their Escape from New York tour in the summer of 1990. Tom Tom Club had a huge hit with Genius of Love, and they were phenomenal. Debbie came out and did all the Blondie hits, plus all the, the wonderful songs from her solo album, Deaf, Dumb, and Blonde, in rapid succession, Ramon style. And then the Ramones came out. They hit you in the chest with their... It was a frontal attack. I've never seen anything like it. They were scary. They were scary good. You can arguably say that Joey was equally as sexy as Debbie, that, and Debbie was in her prime back then. Let me tell you, in 1990, nobody was sexier than Debbie Harry. Forget it, Madonna. Forget it. But Joey was sexier than Madonna. It was a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant concert. It's okay. You can keep your magic to yourself. Keep it tucked away. Brad from Kensington, Maryland, going. Um, I just finished listening to your very treasures show and wow was I surprised by Tasha came out of the blue was not expecting that and just absolutely loved it and it's something amazing that I haven't heard in so long and just thanks for exposing me to this and so much other great music thank you and they never say thank you girl no more messages to give us your opinions on sound opinions call our hotline 888-859-1800 We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.